the Backpage Football Podcast. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. When the seagulls follow Chora, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. And do I say okey-doke all the time? You do. I don't even say it all the time. You say it about, say, 15 times in the programme. <laughs> People are telling us this is a great day for Irish football. Well, it's not difficult to get Trapatoni if you're going to pay him that amount of money. I'll tell you, it's a great day for his accountants and his bankers. I can't believe it. Football, by the hell. BBF. Hello and welcome to this week's Treat the Back podcast, brought to you by BackpageFootball.com. Um, lads, who would have thought this time last week that we would be having yet another inquiry into the state of Irish football? But that's where we find ourselves this week a devastating loss to Luxembourg in the past 20 years. Flash before our eyes once again. Stephen Kenny suddenly under immense pressure with his job and any semblance of progress after the Serbia game, even though we lost, has been well and truly kiboshed. A result that will go down amongst our worst ever and a result that leaves everyone reeling this week. The back pages in introspective overdrive. There really is never a dull moment when it comes to Irish football, is there? I'm joined, as usual, by Phil Green and Inda Higgins. How are you, lads? How are we doing? Evening, lads. You could look at this loss as being a culmination of mismanagement in Irish football for the past 20 years or so. Um, And I think, in fairness, that's the approach a lot of people are taking, which means Kenny will at least be given the rest of the World Cup qualifiers, if not longer, um, given the huge job he has at hand. Others are pinning the blame um, on Kenny and a manager who might be trying to do too much too soon with players that aren't really ready for this stage. But, um, but either way, it's been a, a real dose of reality and, and kind of hammers home where where we actually are as a, as a football nation right now. Yeah, I, I think with every game that goes by, Perversely, I'm nearly happy that we didn't manage to get past Slovakia uh, and then past Northern Ireland in, into the Euros because it almost feels like we don't deserve to have the the cracks papered over with like a home major tournament game. Like, if you can you imagine if we were now, um, hopefully getting games in Dublin this summer for the Euros, have having gotten through somehow, everything would seem rosy in the garden. Um, I think unfortunately Saturday is a lot closer to where we are as a country or as a footballing country anyway, um, than playing major tournament games at home. Um, like you said, it's, there's kind of been this split between, you know, like uh, people accepting the kind of systematic mismanagement of, of Irish football for the last 25 years, and people who are maybe thinking that the manager isn't up to a job that they never thought he was going to be up to. I think it's absolutely legitimate that whatever manager is kind of holding the can for a 1-0 loss at home to Luxembourg. I think it's perfectly legitimate to ask questions of him and his approach because something has gone wrong somewhere uh, where, where for that to be the case. I think the other side of the coin is also perfectly legitimate that it is kind of a natural conclusion of the way we've been going. I mean, we had some pretty near misses in the last campaign. We kind of squeaked by Gibraltar, squeaky enough out there, bet Georgia at home through a set piece that we were never going to score from otherwise. Um, this has kind of been building to this point and we kind of came up against a side who were able to exploit us a little bit and able to score a, a quite nice goal um, to, to beat us. But I, I think it is probably fair that, and like I've been as big a supporter of Kenny getting the job as anyone and absolutely willing to give him time to make big changes. But I think it's also very fair to look at some of the things he did in-game 
on Saturday night and say that allowing for not having the players, allowing for such a disrupted first kind of six or nine months in the job, allowing for all of those mad circumstances he's found themselves in, he made decisions in-game on Saturday night that contributed to us losing that game. And those need to be addressed as much as the wider systemic problems. Yeah, maybe because of the times we're in and, and the coverage and there's not much else to talk about. I, I can't remember this level of heat being put on an Ireland manager in quite some time. I know that Trapattoni, O'Neill and McCarthy had their own different types of, you know, analysis and commentary around what they're doing. But, you know, they had much stronger squads available to them. And I think, you know, the criticism was mostly valid, um, occasionally over the top based on obviously the success of, of previous Irish managers. But some of the coverage this week especially has really surprised me. Uh, you know, Kenny Cunningham saying it was, you know, it was worse than the Cyprus match a few years ago. Um, when you actually look at what Luxembourg have been doing in the last few years, especially their Nations Cup form, I mean, they're probably a par for Ireland at the moment. And that's the the way the game went. I think, you know, Ken Early's article this morning was probably the best write-up I've seen on it in terms of these were two evenly matched teams and, and it was the type of match that happens when you get two teams um, that go that goes that way um, and it was decided by you know a couple of key moments as Phil said I, I, I think it was probably Kenny's worst in-game management uh, in terms of the decisions he's made um, although against Serbia I was a bit disappointed particularly subbing off Molumbi after an hour <clears throat> so You'd hope that there's not a pattern emerging there that he, he's getting things wrong, you know, in the middle of games because that's much tougher to defend than, um, you know, discussing what's available to him and the injuries in the squad. But again, it was just another week that just highlighted that very little is going his way. I mean, even if that Ronaldo goal stood against Serbia, you know, we'd be in a better position in the group to still have a chance. So just things like that. Yeah, everything is just going against him at the moment, and um, you know, it, it feels weird to. Say, uh, he doesn't have credit in the bank per se, but considering how long he's been involved in the Irish game, considering he's managed youth teams at international level, um, there always was going to be this process of transition. And if you actually look at the teams he's picked, he is trying to basically, in a not too subtle way now at this stage, move out the old guard um, and really stick with some of these younger players. I think Ida probably would have started at least one of one or two of those games in the last week. Obviously, Conley, um, Bazunu obviously was the real highlight of the Luxembourg game. So, it, you know, we will see results and performances like that um, probably in, in the next few international breaks until everybody is fit. And then, then we'll be able to judge him uh, more harshly. But, um, you know, I'm still in the kind of sympathetic Stephen Kenny phase mm. at the moment. Yeah, it was a real shock to the system. Um, I mean, anyone who backed the Kenny project would have expected there to be a lot of growing pains. But I think when you're in a situation where you haven't won in 10 games, you're, you're, you've scored very few goals, but then you look at this fixture and you kind of highlight it as one that, you know, we could get a little bit of a bounce from. Um, and I think the overall performance, not only from, from Ireland's perspective, but how Luxembourg played um, and how they were able to, deal with us um, tactically um, and how well they were set up against us. I think it, it was a little bit of a, a surprise and I think a lot of people can get bogged down by world rankings and, you know, look at a 98 ranked team in the world and think we should be beating those when in reality, um, you know, what are we doing at the moment? We're, we're, 
we're getting we're we're losing so much ground on that category of countries. Um, like if you want to loop that Nations League Division Four, you know the likes of Georgia, um, who very nearly beat Spain um, at the weekend. Like they're gaining ground on us while we're not progressing at all. Um, and I think what's really evident um, after Saturday is is just the makeup of the squad. And I think, I don't, I don't want to say that we deluded ourselves into, you know, thinking this generation was going to, I mean, turn everything around immediately, but there's such, there's a complete generation gap between, say, Robbie Brady's era and Jeff Hendrick and what's coming in now, the 20 and 21 year olds. Um, and that's, and we'll get into more with Ronan, but that, it shows how much of a pit the Irish football system was in during that generation where, I mean, so many countries have been kind of building their infrastructure, building their academies, um, getting their coaches in place, you know, getting funding in place. And I mean, I had to left um, there on Sunday, I think, when um, Jerry Farrell, a chap used to write for the website, um, tweeted out an article from eight years ago um, on Backpage Football, about um, which mentioned you know, some details that funding that we received from UEFA um, went into paying the mortgage for, for the Aviva when in reality it should have been going into youth development and, you know, you could just think of how much could happen within those eight years. Um, Phil, you mentioned the changes during the game. I mean, I think this was probably the first game where you could be truly critical of Kenny from a kind of system perspective because, I mean, up until now there's been so much turnover from game to game um, here there was very little changes only only Aaron Connolly um, and um, Jason Knight coming into the team I mean how they set up but how slow he was to change things when it clearly looked um, they just simply wasn't working and, and Luxembourg had, had essentially found us out with that three at the back system yeah and like Gav, Gavin Cooney wrote a great piece for the 42 today um, looking at what Luxembourg did to us out of possession and actually drew it back to something that Kenny referenced from his time in the 21s at the Toulon tournament. Uh, he, he was to- talking about how Brazil altered the, the height of their fullbacks on one side of the pitch or the other, kind of tilted the play uh, to suit how they wanted to press. And Luxembourg did something like very basic, not earth-shattering. You know, it wasn't Guardiola like drawing strings together on a on a chart on a cork board or anything like that it wasn't it wasn't like world defining but they pushed up on our right hand side when Bazuna was kicking out meaning that the only short ball was Kieran Clark who is our weakest of the back three for passing and they they let the ball go to um and the Stevens and then they pressed and they won the ball high up and so that was one feature of the first half which didn't work was that Kieran Clark was giving the ball away an awful lot then Matt Doherty had to come off injured so you've got a natural way out without looking like your scapegoating Karen Clark, who would be big enough and bold enough to take it, even if you were. But here's a natural way out. You've you're playing five defenders. One of them needs to come off. You now have four left on the pitch. Switch to a back four. Solve our problem of the the easy press trigger. Solve our problem of breaking their press. But he didn't. He instead moved Alan Brown out to the right wing back slot, which felt really weird at the time and only got weirder. And whatever yeah. bit of threat that we carried. And obviously that really good move that finished with the James Collins chance started with Bazunu giving the ball to Darty and working across the pitch. That was gone because the understanding between Brown and Coleman wasn't the same as between between Coleman and Darty. 
And so our threat, whatever was there in the first half, completely dissipated from about 60 minutes. And even at nil all, what really worried me was at nil all on 60 or 65, it felt like there was only two possible results, Ireland hanging on for a draw or Luxembourg actually winning. It felt like our chance of winning was basically gone when we we didn't bring Anton in the second half. And Kenny let that linger and linger. And as Enda said, that's worrying if that's a pattern because I agree with him, the the, the changes midweek against Serbia, I don't think did us many favours. Part of that is because I don't think we've got a massive squad to be making loads of impactful subs. But that's two games in a row where the in-game decisions maybe didn't benefit us. And this time I thought actively hurt us. And that is a bit of a worrying pattern if it continues. It might just be, you know, kind of a twice-off situation. But um, it was worrying that it was something that was such an obvious problem that he was presented with an obvious fix and didn't take it. Yeah, it was an interesting one and well-spotted, Phil, what, about Alan Brown. And, and the interesting thing about that was in, in the formation we had, he was probably our number 10. And then to move him out as our, our right wing back was very odd, but it also shows you the level of intelligence we're coming up against now because Luxembourg really outdid us tactically by just letting one of our wingbacks get the ball from the kick out and then pushing up on him. And you're always going to be really limited in that formation. Certainly Matt Doherty and Enda Stevens, they're two, what you call it, attacking wingbacks. You know, we've seen Doherty struggle in, in a back four this season. Um, and Enda Stevens is the same when he's played for Ireland in a back four. So to basically push them back deep, um, was really clever and it just goes to show you like you said we were deluding ourselves but you know we're dealing with players who are playing in the championship who are on loan in the championship and then you look at the Luxembourg guys and some of them are playing in in the Bundesliga you know so that gap is closing all the time that talent is progressing and unfortunately Ireland um, are regressing and we're starting to see it now and you mentioned George against Spain who played really really well the other night they needed you know obviously the Danny Almo goal at the end so, you know, there's no easy matches anymore. I mean, even, you know, even France, when they've been playing um, yesterday against Kazakhstan, I mean, they didn't have it all their own way. So these matches are getting tougher and tougher for all the international teams. Um, and I'm worried now that Ireland are going to get, you know, caught in the crossfire here and we'll have a, a lot more nights like last night. It's, I mean, it's, it's obviously a results-driven business um, at the end of the day. Um, as much as we kind of want to convince ourselves, you know, that, that there's progression and, you know, no matter how long it takes, you want to see some sort of cohesive team being put together with, with you know, bright ideas and decent performances and nice passing possession and all that. But, I mean, I don't know if any, either of you saw the, the Finding Jack Charlton documentary last night. Um, and... The one thing I took away from that was just, you know, the, the the bond and the camaraderie that they had back then. And obviously it's easy to kind of form that sort of um, crack when, when you're winning games and you're you're going to tournaments. But I do feel sorry for this current group and, and Kenny especially that, you know, not only are we playing in front of empty stadiums um, and obviously, you know, Luxembourg are playing in front of empty stadiums as well and, and everyone else we're playing against is, but... I do feel sorry for this group that they kind of haven't had the chance yet, um, especially some of the younger lads, you know, to to have that bond. Like there's only so much um, crack and, and camaraderie you can kind of create in, in those bubbles where, you know, you, you you have a lot of kind of COVID procedures to adhere to and you probably, you know, have to limit your um, uh, your, your, your travel restrictions and 
um, kind of keep your space and distance from from your teammates. So, I mean, you'd like to think, I know they have um, a trip to Spain planned this summer. Hopefully things are a little bit better in terms of COVID and, you know, they can kind of crack on together because, I mean, at the end of the day, we have pretty much moved on from that kind of older group and it's very much youth focus now as and I mean Kieran Cunningham had a had a good line on on um day off the ball Sunday review about, you know, a lot of these players have been over promoted simply because, you know, we've no other choice. But I mean if we if we can kind of get a bond going and get these kind of these core group of players that are clearly talented. I mean they wouldn't be they wouldn't be in the squad at the end of the day if they weren't talented. Um and they wouldn't be, you know, on loan at Premier League and Championship clubs. Um, but it it is just something I f- I do feel a lot of kind of I do feel sorry for for this group that they haven't that they've essentially lived their entire international career so far in a in a COVID bubble in in, in front of no fans. And, and another thing that they're having to do because of that kind of callousness of the squad. I mean, Gavin Bazunu did media after the match. He was doing it again today or yesterday. Jason Knight was doing media today. And um, these are lads like literally on their first handful of caps who are having to come up come out and front up on like you know one of the top five or five or ten worst results in, in Irish football in history and because that's like you said they've been they've been over over promoted out of lack of choice uh, and I, the only thing that might be working in their favor in that com- camaraderie is that you are talking about a decent bunch of them who would have played together at, at some of the grades um, but it's it's still not the same, and it's harder for them to integrate. I mean, you know, coming in and, and going alongside someone like Seamus Coleman. I mean, there's not many Irish players who will have an aura at the minute in that squad, and I don't mean to be too harsh about it. But like, there's not a Roy Keane in that in that squad. There's not even a Robbie Keane or a Shea Given. Uh, Coleman is is probably the one with the biggest aura there. It's helpful that he's such a nice guy, and he would definitely be open and approachable. But it's hard for for the young guys to come in and form bonds with these players. Uh, like you know, Bazoon is nineteen, Coleman's thirty-two. He's closer to being his father than his teammate, nearly. Um, and you have to try and find ways of fostering connections with your teammates, like you said, in this kind of sterilized world. And there's nothing to bond them together in terms of, like, can you imagine what the Aviva would have been like if Bazoon made a couple of saves as he caught those balls early, the ball over the top? I mean, he would have been roared on with approval, would have been filled with confidence. Um, it's tough to be going through a hard patch without any support from people. I suppose it's helpful that you're not getting any kind of stones thrown at you at the same time, but you'd like to think that the people in the stadium will be supportive to to a, a young group of lads who are trying to find their way for Ireland. Yeah, you mentioned the Jack Charlton documentary and, and really what it showed is 30 years of decline in squad quality. You know, you look back, there was a lot of fuss made in the documentary yeah. at the time about David O'Leary, but, you know, yeah. uh, you know, Paul McGrath and Mick McCarthy as a centre-back pairing, you know, that you wouldn't go too far wrong with that. And then O'Leary obviously has the backup. Um, and that's just one example of, of the type of talent that Ireland had available. Um, and I was saying to you in the group earlier, I think there's not just FAI factors at play here, there's societal factors. Obviously, Ireland players got more chances 20 or 30 years ago to play in England because clubs didn't have this global scouting network. And also it was more part of the culture growing up in Ireland, you know, to be playing football with your friends. But we've seen other sports kind of t- take precedence. And obviously the development of construction here in this country has, has ruined a lot of potential open green areas. And, and that's the type of stuff that can you really start to see um, affecting the talent coming through. Because that's really where kids 
learn the basics you know they teach themselves the basics and then obviously it's refined with coaching as they you know grow older and become teenagers and then you're spotted and you know you go over to club academies and and it's refined even more over there so um there's so much to factor in in the last kind of 20 or 30 years but you know it's just disappointing that we didn't really build on the momentum of 2002 in particular and then we had a bit of momentum again in 2012 but as you said money was used to pay off loans rather than develop youth academies and it's always going to be tricky when that's the case yeah like for, for the newsletter last week um or it was only friday actually god it feels like a long time ago but um i was looking through irish teams in, in competitive fixtures all the way back to that 2002 World Cup. So I did 20 years. I couldn't bring myself to go any further. I was breaking my arse going through these 20 years of teams looking for a younger average starting 11 than we had in Serbia. And I, I couldn't find it in those 20 years. It was the youngest. I can't say beyond that. I'd imagine when Robbie and Duff were breaking into the team, we might have had a younger one. But up until the World Cup in 2002, I couldn't find the younger one than, than in Serbia on Wednesday night. But what struck me was we basically had two sets of players since 2002. It was that Robbie Duffer, Richard Dunche given era uh, that kind of bled into like a bit of John O'Shea, Glenn Wheel and Shane Long. Uh, and obviously Robbie's kind of a common, thre- common thread throughout it all. But we had kind of two sets of players in 20 years kind of buffered by some kind of squad players of like varying degrees of quality. Names like um, Andy Reid, Stephen Ireland, Darren O'Dea getting thrown in and out of squads, but just the same names that kept cropping up until they were kind of 36, 37 years of age, like absolutely ringing every drop out of these lads. And it's kind of what you were saying earlier, Kev, the gap between like Robbie Brady, Jeff Hendrick, and then these youngest guys, that was the case when they came into the team as well. When when Brady and Hendrick came in at kind of 23, 24, it was Robbie Keane, Shea Given, who was in the in Ireland's goal until he came off against Germany the, the night we bet them 1-0, he started that game. And he was 36, 37, 38. Um, it, like it just speaks to this kind of immediacy that we had in the, the last 20 years where everything was wrung out of the same guys and there was no thought to developing mm. a wider group of players. And we, we already have a thin group of players, but it was just a focus on playing John O'Shea until his legs fell off playing Robbie Keane until he couldn't move anymore. Like, it was just, like, it just really stood out to me going through how long these players kept cropping up for. It's Yeah, it's really, and it's really going to come to roost now and it's going to be exacerbated by, by Brexit, you would imagine, um, where Ireland, Irish, you know, young players won't be able to move freely over and back between the UK as, as before um, and a reliance on, on the UK system, which... You know, if you look at England's U teams, I mean, they're developing players themselves. I mean, there is no room for for Irish guys to come in at the moment, um, such as the, you know, the the, the conveyor belt that that England are, are uh, throwing out there at the moment. Um, I suppose one thing, I mean, you don't like to kind of theorize about Kenny's job so far, but I think. We know we can take away that you know if he isn't the guy to take Ireland forward. That at this point it could be a blessing in disguise in four or five years' time. Um, when we look at the Jason Knights and Gavin Bizunus and whoever else that they will already have been well blooded. Um, I mean Bizuno is nineteen years old and and he's been pushed out for for interviews like you said. Like I mean in prior managements. He mightn't have been making his debut until he was twenty-five or six. I mean, that's how slow we were to promote youth. 
Um, and now that it's been done and Kenny has done that, I mean, it is a little bit of a, I don't know, is it a, you know, a positive in that, you know, he mightn't be the, the guy long-term for Ireland, but if they do get the same sort of character in, and maybe a little bit more experienced manager um, or someone who might be able to better kind of merge, you know, nice progressive football, but being, you know, defensively solid and, and you know, not throw all the way back to four four two and, you know, someone like Sam Allardyce or Steve Bruce or something like that. But at least we can say that we have bl- blooded these guys in. Um, and if we are looking back in four or five years time, um, at this era and say, Jesus, you know, there was a lot of bad results, but look at look at the players that did come through during that period um, at 19, 20, 21. And, and, and we might thank, thank Kenny, uh, you know, when they're 26 and 27, the fact that they have so much international experience by that point. Yeah, I, I think he's picking starting 11s already that suggests he, he's looking to the future. Um, it would have been very easy to throw in the experienced guys um, particularly for Luxembourg, um, you know, Duffy, Long, McLean, etc. And then he'd be able to hide behind that for a while. And, and McCarthy did that a bit, in fairness. Yes, he got results, but just about. Um, and Kenny's been slightly braver in his team selections now. Obviously, it hasn't paid off. Um, but again, I'd, I'd still like to think that we'll see the benefit of that, you know, in the next three to four years. And there are other players around who we haven't seen play for Ireland yet. I mentioned Nathan Collins, obviously, in the last podcast. I think he'll be a massive one for us. Um, and a, a few of the under-21s um, who play quite well against Wales the last day. Um, so there still is enough to work with for now. So I'm hoping that we will see the benefit simply because they're getting so much experience at the moment. Yes, it's past the character-building phase, considering the battering they've taken both in the press, online, you know, from fans, etc. But um, he was brought in to oversee this transitional phase and really build that gap so we don't have a situation, like Phil said, where we're picking, you know, guys till their mid to late 30s or, you know, I mean, even searching for the Graham Kavanaugh's of this world just because they have or look experienced. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think and hope that we will see the benefit of it in certainly four to five years' time. <laughs> And depends of the quality of the eggs. In the supermarket you have eggs class one, class two, class three. And some are more expensive than others and some give you better omelets. So when when the class one eggs are in Waitrose and you cannot go there. Real Madrid is not Barcelona, it's an office small team, have many problems. I want my players play with balls. Feel a little bit of um, interesting transfer news today from a, a Liverpool perspective and from a, a reasonably decent source as well. The uh, the Athletic and David Ornstein um, usually kind of concentrates on Arsenal stuff, but um, Ibrahim Konate, the um, RB Leipzig defender, and I mean, whenever um, an RB Leipzig defender is uh, 
is on the rumor mill. It's usually Upa Meccano. Um, so, but Canate, um, very highly rated uh, French under twenty one international. Um, some question marks over his injury history, but um, in true kind of YouTube fashion, there was a, there was a three or four minute clip going around, <laughs> and he and he, he looks pretty decent to me. <laughs> Yeah, it, it it was nice news to wake up to, um, given all that we've we've had with Ireland over the last couple of days and kind of national teeth and 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 wailing and and sorrow. That it was nice as a Liverpool fan to wake up this morning and and see kind of a return to the proactivity in the transfer market that Liverpool had kind of been renowned for, um, under Michael Edwards in recent years. They've they've haven't been caught sitting on their hands too often, like they maybe were last year in terms of not replacing Lovren. And like they definitely were in terms of going panic shopping on uh, on transfer deadline day in January, and um, like you, Kev, I mean, Canale is very highly thought of, but I wouldn't know heaps and heaps about him. Like he, like you said, he's missed a decent bit of football for Leipzig over the last eighteen months, really. Now, uh, twenty eighteen nineteen was the last time he played what you'd call a full season, um, and like his profile and the pieces that you read and the videos you look at, it's very good, quite progressive in terms of dribbling the ball. Uh, his his passing could maybe do to improve a little bit, but he's very young in terms of centre half. He's only 21, like you said. He's uh, interestingly, he's kind of, he was on the bench in the first game the French had in the 21s championship there, the European championships on the minute and he started the second one. Um, I, like it, it, it seems like a smart bit of business from Liverpool's point of view. Ornstein reckons it's going to be, it's going to take to 40 million Euro release clause to sign him, whoever is going to sign him. Um, if Liverpool were to sign Kanate and Quebec, who they have an option on for 18 million, they'd have five senior centre-backs going from a position where they had three <laughs> at the start of the year. It feels like they're maybe learning their lesson a little bit. I think it would also give a little bit of space to Van Dijk and Gomez to come back kind of organically as opposed to having to been rushed back. It gives them a buffer on Matip and the fact that he only started nine games and played in 12 total last season. And I also think it opens up the idea that Gomez could cover one or both of the fullback positions uh, because for various reasons, Neko Williams and Simicast haven't been really able to to nail themselves as repl- as kind of second choice, reliable second choices to either Robertson or, or Alexander-Arnold. Um, so I, I think it's it's smart business. He, he's very highly thought of. If Liverpool can get it wrapped up nice and early with relative, red, relatively pain-free at a decent number of 40 million, I'd say they'd be happy enough. Um, but it's a sign of intent, which I think is nearly as important as what the business actually is. I think Liverpool fronting up and saying that they're ready to hit the ground running next season is important. Well, he started the 5 0 at Old Trafford, so if he wants to carry that form consistently <laughs> in England, you know, I'm I'm all for it. But um, no, I think he's an impressive player. I think we'll see at Bayern what Upamecano is made of, but. I actually feel he's quite clumsy and, and loses possession a lot when trying to dribble forward. And Kanate is probably a little more polished in that regard. Uh, be slightly concerned over the types of injuries he seems to be getting from the little research um, I've been able to do on him. It seems kind of these these muscle fiber injuries at 20 years of age that made him miss you know months and months um, is quite concerning. But if if Liverpool can get him to pass the medical, and as we've seen, Phil, we were talking about Nabil Fekir every, earlier, um, you know, they, they seem to be quite stringent in that regard. So if, if mm. he does pass the medical, you would assume all is okay. But like you said, it's in a summer, you know, potentially Chelsea aside, where we'll see, and a city, of course, we'll probably see United, Arsenal, um, 
and a few of the others struggle to spend financially as they would wish. So if Liverpool can, you know, get 40 million wrapped up um, this early on, um, it would be quite the statement of um, where they're looking to get back to next season. Um, And I imagine the success that Klopp has had mixed with the frustration of not getting in the quality cover at centre-back that he would have probably requested and required last summer. Um, I imagine there was a few harsh discussions at some point throughout the season, so it's no surprise that Liverpool are going to prioritise that area to start off with. Um, and then, Phil, as you said earlier, offline, probably the Wijnaldum and striker situations will be addressed as well. Would you call this an overhaul? Um, I mean, you look at the... the the introduction of Curtis Jones this year, um, Harvey Ellis might be might be an option in, in one of the wider roles. He's you know he, considering how well he's done at Blackburn. Um, I mean, I was very very skeptical of of Quebec at the beginning. Um, I thought he looked kind of slow and kind of a little bit apprehensive um, when under pressure. But in fairness, now since since he's been bedded down to big Nat Phillips, he's um, he looked pretty pretty decent. Um, so no, far from written enough. And I, th- I think for the sake of eighteen million, probably worth the punt there, especially if it's going to be a third or fourth choice centre back that you could develop yourself. So I suppose if you look at if Quebec is signed permanently, if Canate comes in, as you said, Curtis Jones has been established as a first team regular this season. He's you know in the first kind of thirteen or fourteen club looks at. Um, if you're talking about Harvey Elliott, maybe coming back, and then you talk about whoever. Uh, Liverpool signed to potentially pl- replace one album. You'd imagine that player is going to be 24 or under. And then you look at who Liverpool might sign up top again, you might be looking at 24 years or under. And even you look at Diogo Jota, who came in in the summer, all of a sudden it's kind of the nucleus of a new team who are also getting bedded in around the existing one. Um, it's probably not replacing the absolute central planks of the team, if that makes sense. It's not, you know, saying for sure that you know Mane and Salah aren't going to start anymore and that Jota and this new centre forward are going to be the main two men but I think that's probably the better way to go about it um, it's it's something that you know United under Fergie was always very good at it was kind of gradual evolution uh, it's something that City from a position of looking like they'd maybe overplayed their hand all of a sudden maybe haven't somehow and I presume you know the money of a of an oil rich state has something to do with it but um, it's it's a difficult position to be in when you land with three or four players the wrong side of 30 and Liverpool are approaching it um, where they have definitely players approaching that that age. So a gradual evolution rather than revolution might be might be how it's looking. Feeling a bit sorry for 25-year-old Ben Davis though all of a sudden who could be <laughs> sixth-choice centre-back <laughs> next season after playing week in, week out I'd in imagine... League One. So um, yeah, I'd imagine he might look to move on in the summer yeah. so quite a strange little transfer that not quite Andy Gorham at Man United levels in 2001 but um, yeah slightly odd but no I don't think it's an overhaul it's just a natu- natural transition and and the fact that you know you look at the type of signings that Liverpool are targeting um, you know Jota was 23 or 24 when he came in um, Kabak is young obviously as well Kanate is young so um they look potentially to be to be smart signings. Obviously, Thiago was a bit experienced, but you know more to come from him next season. It will be interesting to see who they target for the Wijnaldum role because I think that's such a key position for Liverpool in terms of their success under Klopp. 
um, just the functionality and balance that he's given that midfield. He's been kind of the key to it all. Um, so I think that's a key signing as well going forward for Liverpool. But um, bringing back Harvey Elliott as well, who's had a pretty good loan spell at Blackburn. And for me, he's, you know, potentially a top, you know, not to sound like a Sky Sports pundit or anything like that, <laughs> but, uh, you know, potentially a, a really high quality player. Um you know, his fake Sergio Ramos quotes aside. Um, <laughs> so I think all of a sudden you have a Liverpool squad who have a nice balance between the bit of experience um, with Van Dijk in his late 20s, Alisson getting a bit older as well. But um, And obviously Mane and Salah and Firmino all in their late 20s, but a nice blend of youth there as well if, if they can pull off these signings. So um, overall, yeah, I think, think the squad is in decent shape and perhaps the worry from FSG that Klopp would have one eye on the German job coming up in the summer has has forced their hand a little bit um, mm. so perhaps not too surprising that that they're making um, early moves this year Some breaking news tonight lads um, that Sergio Aguero is going to leave Man City at the end of the season and I mean he's kind of often overlooked in that category of you know best foreign players to go into the Premier League I you know, I think Thierry Henry has probably established himself there as as being um, the go-to answer in that question. But I mean, you look at his 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 stats and 181 goals um, in the Premier League, uh, fourth all time, just six off Andy Cole, um, and six ahead of Thierry Henry. I mean, he's kind of I don't want to say he's underrated, but he has he's just been an absolutely phenomenal Premier League player, and I don't I probably hasn't been appreciated to the to the full extent as others tend to be he's only been in two teams of the year in his time in england uh which seems bizarre um like you know he's a four-time league winner and uh, which is again more than Henri. He's, he's scored more goals than Henri, and um, but much less being player of the year he's only been in two teams of the year um like i'm i'm gonna be the last one to ever roll up and, and defend Manchester City players, but or maybe second last after Ender. But um like he's he's been absolutely phenomenal and like the just sheer reliability of him up until recent years when injuries have kind of taken over. But when he was available, he scored. And he scored he's definitely been the bane of of my life as a Liverpool fan. He seemed to fucking score every time Liverpool rocked up to the Eddie hat. It was just a guarantee that Aguero would do something Miraculous and absolutely hammer a ball past our goalkeeper at the near post, um, like he's been he's been a cornerstone of of their success uh, in their in their modern era, and like he'll be hard to replace. He's already seen like Pep tried to oust him early in his reign with Jesus, it didn't work out, and um, maybe he's unearthed the best false nine since Leo Messi and Gundogan somehow, and it might be able to help. But he's he's a hard person to replace just because of the sheer reliability of his goals when he's there. So I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, I know people talk about him being great, but fourth all-time in goals, four league titles, uh, and only two teams of the year, I think he probably is underrated for for as well as he's thought of. Yeah, I remember watching a World Cup qualifier, I think it was late 2009, and um, they were talking about this guy who, at that time, he was already married on a son-in-law, so you kind of felt, right, they're pushing him a bit hard here. He'd struggled initially in Spain with Atletico, you know, 
messy aside, he looked a bit short and being a, a vertically challenged individual myself, you know, I'm quite judgmental on their success in the game. Um, <laughs> I do like the, the taller striker. Um, but, you know, as his relationship with Forlan grew in Spain, um, you could tell that there was huge potential there. And then his debut against Swansea in, in 2011 and 12, it, it was a real moment for me. Obviously, I'd feared what City were doing in 2011. Obviously, you know, knocking Yardis out of the FA Cup and, you know, Torre and Tevez and, and Silva and, you know, Zeko at the time. But I still didn't think that they were capable of, of doing what they actually ended up doing. And then once Aguero came in, uh, there was just a completely different feel about Manchester City. They just had somebody who could just elevate their game to another level. Um, and that's just what he did uh, for, you know, a whole decade. Phil, you talk about the the near goal strike against Liverpool, but, you know, David De Gea has about 10 of those in his nightmares weekly at this stage. I think it just seemed to be the type of goal. He, he became the master of scoring, but, you know, very underrated in the air as well. You know, and just scored all different types of goals. He was a poetry. He could score from outside the box, good on his left foot or right foot, and and scored in a lot of big matches as well. Obviously, Manchester derbies, cup games. Um, bit of a shame if you know he probably could end uh, his reign without a trophy in Europe for City. But um, that aside, uh, he's just been a phenomenal player. And you know, City for all their money, they've just gotten extraordinarily lucky with these type of players who just seem to be consistently excellent for a whole decade um, and he's he's a group of four or five players who's managed to, to be that for them um, which is not easy to find no matter how much money you have in the game so um, their recruitment in, in 2011 and 2010 um, really has been key to what they've been able to build now um, because if if they'd gotten it wrong at that time I don't think there would be a Guardiola at City now and I don't think they would have the league titles that they have so um, they've been incredibly fortunate in that regard. But uh, yeah, Aguero has been a massive part of that. Les, quickly before um, we sign off, um, just to kind of touch quickly on a topic that we covered last week uh, and got a pretty good response was uh, in relation to the, you know, the increased uh, attention on the human rights issues in Qatar. Um, and obviously we had Nicholas McGee and on a talk he spoke really, really well um, on you know the wealth of issues that they have, and just after we recorded, it came out that Germany had had worn T-shirts um, in, in support of of similarly to, to Norway, and it's kind of now increased over the weekend. It, it, it sounds like it's not something that's going away, going to go away too quickly. Um, there's a lot of players starting to come out and speak about it, um, and it's, it's really going to be on the forefront of of, of players and teams' mind as as we continue through the, the qualifying phase. Yeah, I thought uh, Joshua Kimmich was very good. I don't know whether he, he spoke today, but he, I definitely saw the quotes today where um, he said, like, it's absolutely an issue that's important, but maybe we're 10 years too late in talking about it, which I think is absolutely fair and right. And he's speaking as somebody who wasn't in a position to affect that 10 years ago. Um, but it, I think it's a fair point. And, you know, there's always going to be a bit of whataboutism about, about things, but like doing it, you know, two years out before the tournament when the qualification campaign is starting, I get the idea behind it and the attention is big, but realistically in terms of actually affecting change and making things different, um, these sort of decisions don't tend to happen on a really short-term basis. I think Kimmich shows some kind of intelligence and kind of um, emotional intelligence about that when he spoke, uh, which was quite impressive for somebody 
relatively young. And I thought Stephen Kenny was quite good today as well, not least because for it as admirable mm. as it is for Germany and Norway doing it, Ireland are playing guitar on Tuesday. It's you know, it's a different situation when you actually have to shake hands with the coach or bump fists with the coach and you know, whatever post match pleasantries there are. Ireland are actually facing into that uh, on Tuesday and I thought it was it was good from Kenny to front up to it. He could have skirted around it. Uh, I think he, he covered a lot of ground in a couple of sentences he talked about that there's definite issues there uh, with the with the way that migrant workers are being treated. There's human rights issues. He didn't skirt that. And he also kind of touched on um, the kind of broader topics of like America boycotting events in Russia and Russia boycotting events in America at the time of the Cold War and what was actually achieved through sports boycotts. So I, I thought Kenny touched on some interesting topics, as he generally does in in topics outside of football or tangential to football um, but it's great to see the air the air time it's being given and the attention that it's drawing um, and like the the argument of people who are in favor of these sort of events taking place in countries where there are dubious records is that you have to have conversations i don't necessarily ascribe to that but this is the type of conversation if there is going to be one that you like to see actually difficult challenging ones not just cozy friendly chats yeah, I'd agree. Uh, you just hope it's not a quick PR win for these national teams, you yeah. know, um, because it, it it really is only the first step to wear T-shirts and obviously discuss it intelligently in press conferences. But, you know, there are levels to this and the, the German stuff in particular was a tricky one because of the lack of support Ozil had in 2018 when he spoke about mo- the Muslim treatments in China. And again, it, they're not like for like, but football wanted to stay out of politics and that was the line from club and country and now all of a sudden it, it's top of the agenda um after norway wear their t-shirts you know so um football still has a long way to go and you know similar to the uh, black lives matter movement you know taking the knee should only be one step and you know there are some players who already feel that that's the only step being taken they've stopped doing it particularly will saha and a few of the others you know so mm. um uh, it's interesting to see where they'll go from here. I don't think anybody will boycott the World Cup. Um, you know, some may threaten it at some point. The Dutch kind of hinted at that in their statement last week, but I can't see it getting to that level. It certainly would be the biggest statement to make, but um, considering what's at stake, I can't see anybody um, stretching to that level. But it will be interesting to see, potentially in five to ten years' time, Um what FIFA's relationship is like with these countries. And I think that's that's all we can judge it on at the moment. But no, I'm not against football trying to do the right thing, even if it just is for PR purposes. I mean, these conversations need to be had now. And, you know, as Phil said about Kimmich, they should have been happening a long time ago. Um, and we're pushed to the back for, for several reasons, mainly financial, but um, it's no harm. Um, the publicity it's getting now due to the World Cup. Slightly unfortunate for Ireland that they have to play a friendly against Qatar. And, you know, Kenny and Ireland, as we've discussed, have a lot on their plate at the moment. Um, <laughs> and Qatar actually have a very strong national team at the moment as well. So I don't think that will be an easy win for, <laughs> for Ireland. A lot of them play for Savi's Al-Sad, who are the champions in Qatar. So uh, a lot of good players in that squad as well. So football in general is actually in good shape in Qatar. But obviously the... The treatment of the migrant workers has been, you know, mm-hmm. completely shambolic and nothing can defend that. Yeah, I, I think if anything comes out of this, um, it's the fact that, you know, if there is another situation where a, a tournament or a competition is going to be uh, awarded to a, to a country with kind of these sort of question marks over it, that 
there will be a kind of a, a push on and a pressure on the likes of FIFA or whoever, you know, to think twice about it. So, I mean, it can only be good, I think, in the long term, uh, especially in terms of open, opening people's eyes to to what exactly is going on there. Um, thanks for that, lads. I mean, it's been a tough week for all concerned um, from the Irish perspective. We'll be back on again next week, back to the good old club form, even though that wasn't too kind to us as well before the international break. Um, thanks, Phil. Thanks, Enda. Thanks, lads. Yeah, cheers, Kevin. Thanks,